millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Dairy 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 down Down and welcome to a bonus episode of the Three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our second series, which will launch in July. To fill the gap, this is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from our first series. We've entitled this episode Three Devils because it contains three of our devil tales, including our Lancashire story, The Cockerham Devil, our Sussex story, Cuthman of Stenning and the Devil, and our Shropshire story, The Legend of a Cat. If you're interested in bonus content and would like access to all of our episodes completely ad-free, then do consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, please visit our website at threeravenspodcast.com. As many know all too well, the devil is fond of Lancashire. Quite why is a mystery, for as long as stories have been told, the people of the county have been playing the devil at his own games. And the devil, angered by their wit and cunning, has earned a reputation for kicking huge hunks of stone in frustration. We know this because the devil's footprint leaves its mark, and you can see these shapes on stones and boulders all across Lancashire today. 
For example, up on Pendle Hill, near the haunted house at Stainscombe, up on the moors where the devil used to meet his witches, there's a pile of stones bearing the shape of old Nick's cloven hooves. People say they came about when he danced jigs at having claimed the witches' souls. Then there's the case of the builders on Scribner Hill, who found a stone nobody could shift. No matter how hard they strained and heaved, there was no moving it. That was until one of the men said he'd sell his soul to the devil, if only he'd move that rock. Lo and behold, the devil appeared, lay on his back, cackled once, and kicked the stone, which went flying off into a nearby field. No one knows what happened to the builder or his soul, but if you look at the wall of North Manchester Meeting House, you can see that very stone used in part of what was once the old cemetery wall. My favourite Devil's Mark, though, is on Broadfleet Bridge in Pilling, and that one came about because the Devil was hopping mad, all from the doings of a wily old schoolmaster called Hallows. See, on the coastal plains of West Lancashire, south of where the River Loon meets the sea, there's a pretty old village where, so it's said, no one ever wanted for much. The lake in Mosswood seemed blessed somehow and was always rich with fish. The forest was likewise filled with game and was a fine place for mushroom picking. Best of all, for a time the village was famous for salt. To this day, you can follow the winding river Cocker out to the sea, but where the land ends and the waves begin is not as it once was. The salt strands that were are all inland now, though once, by wetting the rocks on the strands with seawater, the people of Cockerham would pike out the saltness, the water sliding off into pits of sod while only the flavour remained. This sweet, briny taste brought gold to Cockerham. Not much, mind you, but enough. Though few merchants ever stayed there for long, hurrying to do their trading and moving on, keeping their coin purses closely guarded. Not for the people of Cockerham were dishonest, far from it. Rather, word was that the fairies liked Cockerham, and in the summertime they would buzz around the salt strands like clouds of shimmering flies, eager for a lick of the salt. Perhaps this is why, when you meet folk from Cockerham, you can note a sort of twinkle in their eyes and a different kind of spring in their step. People say that this is because maybe, just maybe, somewhere back along the line, a great-great-grandmother or a great-great-grandfather did a trade with the Fae to bring their kin good luck. Or maybe, as unlikely as it seems, on one Midsummer Eve, one of them fell in love with a fairy, and the babe born afterwards was blessed with a share of their magic. Nowadays, it's still said that fairies will swing by Cockerham from time to time just to see how the folk there are doing. And part of why they do, even now, what with the salt being long gone, is even the fairies know the story of the place, the echo of the legend lingering like a pinch of salt on the tongue. You see, what with Cockerham being such a fine village, with all a person could want or need on any given day, the people there were happy. Not haughtily so, mind you, but they were a jolly lot, living lives without much care. 
And perhaps it was because of this, or perhaps it was down to the monks at nearby Cockersand Abbey, whose bells and prayers chafed in his ears. But either way, one day, long ago, the devil came to Cockerham and looked to make it his permanent home. The people of the village didn't realise at first, because at first the changes were subtle. The children all spied peculiar things, though, like birds flying backwards and flowers hiding their petals, growing down into the earth. Children being children, they reported this on, telling their mothers and fathers about it. But parents being parents, they took no heed busy as they were with splitting wood for fires, planting crops in the rich earth, or piking salt to give their lives more flavour. At the schoolhouse, though, Ambrose Hallows, the schoolmaster, well, he listened to the children prattling. Hallows was just one of those fellows with a spring in his step and a twinkle in his eye. He never knew love, say a love of books, and liked to play pranks on Mr Schofield, the rector at St Michael's Church. And though Hallows took a healthy penny from each household for each child he taught, he'd heard plenty of gossip from children over the years and knew, firstly, not to take it too seriously, and secondly, not to pass the chatter on, for that was a sure way of losing pupils. After school each day, though, Ambrose Hallows would walk around the village saying hello to this person and that, checking all about the place was as it should be. For, as we all know, village life relies on people like Mr Hallows, the first ones to start a snowball fight, the voice at the back of the pub who calls out for a wager, or the person who suggests that a fair might be nice to mark this occasion or that from time to time. And one evening, just a few days after the prattle of children had reached his ears, Mr Hallows came across Mary Briarcliff on one of his walks, with Mary all in a mess and a muddle. "'What's occurring, Mary?' Ambrose asked. And through the blubbing of tears and the catching of breath, Mary told Mr Hallows of a very strange thing indeed. "'It's my Bessie,' she said. I was milking her sea, not thinking of much while I did, and there I was with my bucket and my cow, sat on my milking stool, squeezing her duds, when you'll never guess what happened, Mr Hallows, not in a month of Sundays. What was it then, Mary? Ambrose said. Don't leave me on tenter hooks. Well, said Mary, I'd never believe it if I didn't see it with my own eyes, but the milk, you see... Instead of yellow, white and creamy as it ought to be, Bessie's milk, it came out black. Black, Mary? Oh, yes, black as pitch and sticky too, like tar that stuck to me fingers. Then Mary held up her hand, which she'd been clutching and hiding in her pinafore. And, would you believe it, no word of a lie, her skin was stained black as night. Just then, the wind blew, but instead of a sweet-smelling summer breeze, Hallows caught something else on the edge of his nose. Unmistakable, he thought, even though it was just a slight whiff. That, he said to himself, is the smell of brimstone. Making his apologies to Mary, off Hallows strode, making a beeline for St Michael's Rectory. Once there, he knocked three times on Mr Schofield's door. 
Young Mr. Schofield, who hadn't long been out of short trousers, opened his door and grimaced. What is it this time, Mr. Hallows? He asked with an edge of hard-earned scepticism. This is because, out of a healthy liking for mischief, Hallows had made a fool of Schofield once or twice. This came about because once Schofield had been one of Mr. Hallow's pupils. Only being such a bright lad, Schofield had gone off to university, becoming a man of letters. Yet, instead of going off to do great and good things, Mr. Schofield had come back to his old parish, which Mr. Hallow's thought was a waste of talent. So, one April 1st, for one reason or another, Mr. Schofield had made a fuss over people eating no meat. He called it April Fish Day. And so Mr. Hallows had ensured there'd be fish everywhere Schofield looked. In his larder, his writing desk, under his pillow, even in the nave of the church. Another time, not long after Schofield had come to the village, Hallows had all the school children pretend that Cockerham was being harassed by a magical goat, visible only to young eyes. The children would point at empty space and holler whenever Mr. Schofield was near, making play of watching the creature bound off over a gate or boundary wall. When something was lost, broken, or too many sweet buns went missing, the children would blame it on the magical goat. So, before long, Schofield was walking about the village with his wooden cross, uttering holy rites in an attempt to rid Cockerham of the mischiefs of the invisible goat. Trouble was, none of the adults in the village had ever heard of such a thing, making Schofield look daft as a brush. That night, though, Hallows was serious when he made his report of Mary and her cow's black milk, and of the children's stories of the birds flying backwards, flowers hiding their colours, and the smell of brimstone on the breeze. I'm afraid it's the devil, Hallows said, and I think this is more your area of expertise than mine. Pah! Schofield replied. The devil in Cockerham? Pull the other one, Mr. Hallows, and good evening to you. With that, Schofield slammed the door in Hallow's face, though he wasn't quite so brash and confident in a few days' time when all across the village things were going wrong. The River Cocker, for example, started to flow upstream. The chickens at the Townley Farm lay only eggs that were already rotten. And, worst of all, when the girls of Cockerham played the lover's game, their apples were bitter and had no pips inside. To explain, the lover's game was famous in those parts. The idea was a Lancashire maid would eat an apple and then when they got to the core, they would sing a song and tip the pips as a way of telling their fortunes. The rhyme, which remains famous, goes as follows. Pippin, Pippin, paradise. Tell me where my true love lies. East, west, north or south. Pilling Moss or Cockermouth. What with Pilling Moss being just a short walk away, it was said in Cockerham that the lover's game was as good a means as any for finding a handsome swain with whom to whisper sweet nothings. But what with the apples gone vicious and with no pips inside at all, people started to fear there would be no new love in Cockerham from then on. 
With all these strange goings on and the air becoming increasingly unbreathable on account of the brimstone smoke and smells, Mr. Schofield was minded to take Mr. Hallows a little more seriously. But no matter the prayers he said or the songs he had the congregation sing, in Cockerham things only went from bad to worse. The skies grew cold, dark clouds gathered, and people started to spot the devil peering around fence posts and street corners. They'd give chase, following the thickening stink of sulphur, but all they'd find is a trail of salt, for the devil had taken to gobbling up all the crystals from the salt strands in the greedy sort of way devils are famous for. Yet, by night, they would hear the devil walking the streets, whistling a happy tune, his cloven hooves clattering and sparking on the ground. They'd see evidence of his passing, grassy verges singed by the whippings of his forked tail, and nasty messages scrawled on pieces of parchment left pinned to things, detailing changes he would like to see. No more smiling for example, and absolutely no laughing, no attending church, no reading or telling stories, and only sweet foods and strong, boozy drinks to be consumed by anyone. Well, some people quite liked all this, but not Mr. Hallows. And that's when the old schoolmaster struck upon a novel idea. He asked Mr. Schofield for his help, but Mr. Schofield was cowering in fear, hiding in the church and muttering scriptures over and over. So, late one night, after quite a lot of thinking, just like with the Yuletide feast, the May Day dance and the Spring Festival, Ambrose Hallows rolled up his sleeves and took matters into his own hands. He started in as sure a way as any, summoning the creature up by saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. No sooner had he uttered the words than, poof, in a cloud of black and stinking smoke, the devil appeared right there in Mr. Hallow's kitchen. Well, well, said the devil. Mr. Hallow's, it's nice to finally make your acquaintance, although as I look around I see vegetables on your kitchen counters. There are well-thumbed books everywhere. And what's this? A calendar to remember people's birthdays? I feel, Mr. Hallows, that you are a good person. Yet all good hearts have scope for corruption, and here you are summoning me. Your soul? Well, it smells deliciously pure. I wonder what might I offer you in exchange for it. I've called you here for a wager, said Mr. Hallows, as I understand you like that sort of thing. Oh, yes, the devil purred. I do so love to gamble. So tell me, what did you have in mind? And this is when Mr. Hallows laid out his terms. You like Cockerham, he said, as do I. It's near enough heaven on earth to me. Yet we both want to make it our home. So I challenge you to three tasks. If you beat me in all three, you can have my soul and Cockerham too. But if I win just once, you'll leave our village and promise to never return. Done, said the devil without really thinking, confident in all that he was. 
Right then, first challenge, Mr. Hallow said nervously, looking out of his window at the sun starting to rise. The long hedgerow at the bottom of Milner's Hollow. By morning, I want you to tell me how many dewdrops are on it. The devil cackled, clicking his fingers and transporting himself and Mr. Hallows to the very spot. And although the hedgerow had been covered with dew, the very act of them appearing and the devil beating his wings saw all of them fall off, save thirteen. The devil counted them up rather sarcastically, then announced the results to Mr. Hallows. There are thirteen dewdrops on this hedgerow, Mr. Hallows. It's almost as if you want me to have your soul. Annoyed, Mr. Hallows huffed for a moment, then thought of the largest field he knew. The cornfield off Crimble's Lane. Take us there, he said. And with a click of his claws, the devil vanished himself and Mr. Hallows, depositing them on the ground not far from the cocker's banks. Since you're so good at counting, manage this. Tell me, how many heads of corn are there in this field? Are you sure? asked the devil. Aye, I am, Hallows replied. The devil snorted with laughter, sparks shooting from his nostrils, and he raised a hand, closed an eye, and in but a few seconds announced the result. Six million, six hundred and sixty-six thousand, six hundred and sixty-six. Mr. Hallows, angered, squinted at the devil out of one flashing eye. You're a cheat, he said. There's not. You've made that number up. Oh, really, said the devil. In which case, why don't you count them? I'll wait. Mr. Hallows by now feeling rightly outsmarted, thought of one last gambit. Fine, then. To the salt strands. Let's go. With a click, whoosh, and smouldery puff, the pair arrived on the salt flats, looking out at the churning waves. Confident in himself this time, and swearing he saw fairy faces hiding in the undergrowth nearby and watching on, Ambrose Hallows made his stand. Weave me a rope, he said, the devil sniggering, using nothing more than the sand on this beach. Oh, very well, said the devil, sighing in a manner which made it clear he was bored. And so, without much effort, the creature tucked his wings in neatly, sat down cross-legged on the beach, and set to work. It didn't take long, and just at the moment you might have said the sun was really up, which made the devil squint, the creature raised his creation aloft, a length of rope woven from the sand of the beach. All done, said the devil, handing Hallows the rope and standing up and brushing himself down. Now both your soul and Cockerham Village are mine. Not so fast, said Mr. Hallows, weighing the rope in his hands. And then, feeling more than a little proud of himself, the old schoolmaster walked down to the water's edge. Once there, he knelt, washing the rope in the salty brine. As he did, it fell to pieces and washed away through Mr. Hallows' fingers. You're a cheat, said the devil, angrily. Oh, really? 
replied Ambrose Hallows. In which case, why don't you tie me up with the rope you just made? I'll wait. And with that, the devil screamed and stamped and flapped his leathery wings, spitting at Mr. Hallows and leaping angrily into the sky. Where he landed at Pilling Moss before taking flight again is where you'll find the mark on Broadfleet Bridge. But suffice to say, the devil never came back to Cockerham. As for what happened to Mr. Hallows, nobody knows for sure, because in all likelihood he died as humbly as he lived, albeit with a salty vein of mischief and a little fairy sparkle lighting him up around the edges. Many moons before the bosom bell was lost, and long before Bonnie Prince Charlie hid in a yew tree near St. Leonard's, this tale of chalk and wave rippled over the downland. I know it's true, for a man my great-grandfather knew saw it all happen. In that time, a tide was turning in the hearts and minds of the people of Sussex. The old faith had woven its tapestry of gods there for a while, but now the new faith had dyed the cloth. The devil was deeply angered by the Wealden folk's adoption of the new teachings, and he was trying every trick he could think of to sow doubt and confusion. You may have heard of the one he tried over in Mayfield against Archbishop Dunstan. Now, Dunstan was a man of the church, but he was also a skilled metal worker and smith. One day, when he was hard at work making shoes for horses, the devil came to tempt him, disguised as a lovely woman. She chatted and flirted with Dunstan, but as the talk grew ever more lewd and wild, he began to guess the truth. So he kept on working at the forge, while the devil sidled closer and closer, and stroked his arm and made all manner of suggestions. But Dunstan snatched his red-hot tongs right from out of the fire and pinched the woman's nose between them. She shrieked and writhed, and then she changed her shape once, twice, thrice, each new shape more monstrous, until at last the devil stood before Dunstan in his own terrifying form. Then Dunstan released the tongs, and the devil flew away to Tunbridge Wells to bathe his blistering nose in the waters. It wasn't the last time the devil brushed with Dunstan, and it's a fair thing to say that he'd somewhat taken against the village of Mayfield, for on their next meeting he told Dunstan he intended to knock down every house there. But Dunstan was ahead of the devil again. He'd nailed all those horseshoes that he'd forged over the doors of all the houses, and that kept the old adversary at bay. Now. While the devil was preoccupied with the malice of Mayfield, there was a shepherd by the name of Cuthman, who lived hard by the church in Stenning. Cuthman was no ordinary shepherd. In fact, he had built the church himself from strong new timber brighter than silver or gold. It's said that he performed all the labour alone, but he struggled to lift the great roof beam. As he was heaving and dragging it up the ladder, a stranger appeared and took his load from him, helping him to finish the church. 
Afterwards, when Cuthman asked his name, the stranger replied, I am he in whose name you were building this church. But ever since the church had been finished, Cuthman had lived a simple life in the fields looking after sheep. Many was the hour he spent sitting on a wide stone, chewing on a straw, and gazing down to the sea. That stone can still be seen today if you walk through Cuthman's Dell, and they do say that miracles happen there. Well, I don't know, for I haven't seen, but I've been told that laying an afflicted limb across that stone will make it well and whole again. One afternoon, as the light was beginning to die away from the sky, and it was getting on for the set of the sun, Cuthman was sitting on his stone and watching the place where the sky met the sea. A magpie flew down into the field, then another, then another. Cuthman saw a great dark shape, like a cloud in the sky but with huge leathery wings, and he felt a coldness take hold in his heart. It was a lonely feeling, like fear and grief mingled together. When Cuthman tore his eyes from the shape in the sky, he saw seven magpies sitting in the field about his feet, and he knew then the truth of what he could see in the clouds, for he remembered the old rhyme. One for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, four for a birth, five for heaven, six for hell, seven for the devil, his own cell. It was the devil, right there in the sky, flying inland from the sea. When Cuthman saw a huge dust cloud to the east of where he sat, and vast clods of earth begin to fly into the air, he knew that the old adversary had his eye on an evil more grotesque than any yet seen in those parts. But what should Cuthman do? He couldn't leave his sheep to the mercies of snatchers or wild beasts. So he said his prayers and asked for help, and it seemed to him as though a warm, low voice came to him. It was all at once like the call of the geese flying overhead, and like the voice of his mother singing him to sleep, and that voice told him exactly what to do. So Cuthman took his shepherd's crook, and he drew a wide circle all around his sheep, containing them within an invisible boundary. Then he hastened away as fast as he could in the direction of the dust cloud to see what the trouble was. Now the devil was in a fierce black fury after what had happened with Dunstan, and he was in no hurry to ever go back to Mayfield. The air around the devil was blue with the insults he shouted about Dunstan and his burning tongs. But now he would show Dunstan, for he had a cunning scheme to punish all the people of Sussex, who no longer cared for him since their conversion to the new religion. The devil had decided that he would take his pronged shovel and dig a vast channel, a long, furrowed trench like a wound through the land, from Punnings where he'd landed with his hooked wings folded around him right down to the shore. When the ditch reached the sea, it would let in its raging waters and drown every Christian in Sussex, washing away their churches of wood and stone and sinking every last iron horseshoe to the bottom of the ocean. Then their prayers and their bells would do them no good at all, 
for he would carry their souls away into his kingdom of fire and sulphur. So the devil grasped his pronged shovel, and he dug and he dug. The first clod of earth he turned up flew to the west and became Chanctonbury Hill, and the second flew to the east where it became Mount Caven. Yet another was Sisbury, and further was Rackham Hill. Nobody could say that the devil didn't go about his business with a fearsome will, which may be why we have the saying to work like the devil. He shoveled until his clawed hands burned, he felt an ache in his cloven hooves, and yet he kept shoveling. While he was working, he felt weighed down by the heavy gold in his pockets, for it's well known that the devil always carries glittering gold and salty soup about him to trade for hungry souls. So he took his gold and he hid it deep below Trundle Hill and left one of his golden calves to guard it from opportunistic thieves. And then he kept on digging his trench, doggedly determined to wash away Sussex and all its god-bothering girls and Bible-bashing boys. Night had come down dark and heavy while the devil worked. The hedgerows were full of snuffling moles and shrieking foxes, frightened at what the devil was doing to their homeland, and with no moon the only light was from the luminous eyes of owls watching for prey. By that time, Cuthman had walked the long miles from Stenning to Punnings and the sight of the devil's big dig. He saw at once what the devil was up to and he felt that cold and grieving feeling about his heart once more, as though a red claw was choking the life from him. But he beat his shepherd's crook three times against the ground, once for father, once for son, and once for Holy Ghost, and that gave him the courage to tap the devil on his burning hot shoulder, so hot that it scorched the skin from Cuthman's finger end. "'What are you digging there so busily, devil?' said Cuthman chewing on the end of a straw and trying for all the world to make it seem as though he was just passing the time of day. I'm digging a channel to let in the sea and carry thy soul away from thee, said the devil, wiping steaming sweat from his dripping brow. You'll be at it a long time, said Cuthman, sounding as disdainful as he could, even though he was sore afraid to see how much the devil had already dug of the great deep valley. I'll be done before the dawn, said the devil, and the sun will bleach your bones when they wash up on shore and beach. I'm not so sure about that, said Cuthman. Seems to me as though you've a long way to go yet. I tell you what, how about a wager? The devil stood back from his digging and leaned on his spade, for as we all know, he cannot resist a wager, a trade, or a gamble of any sort. I'm listening, said the devil. I'll bet that you can't dig all the way to the sea by morning, said Cuthman, pointing down in the direction of the coast. Done, said the devil right away, for he'd already dug a fair few metres along, and he knew that he had half a black sheep still left in his pocket, ready to gobble down and bolster his strength for a long night's work. "'You've not heard the rest of it yet,' said Cuthman. "'If you don't succeed, and you haven't dug all the way to the sea by morning, then you're to fly back to where you came from, and not trouble us here again.' The devil laughed, 
a sound like the rumble of coals falling into the fireplace, for he knew it would be an easy task for him. The stars had only just begun to show their shapes against the blackness of the sky, and there were many hours yet left of night. And if I do succeed, said the devil, I'll take your soul in payment too. Cuthman neither agreed nor disagreed to that directly, but he did point out that if the devil succeeded, then he and his soul would be washed away anyway. But never pray as you're being drowned, said the devil, or I won't have my sport at all. Cuthman made no promises about that. Instead, he said to the devil that he would let him get on, as it wouldn't be a fair bargain to keep him talking all the night and waste his time. The devil should have thought this showed a far more reasonable spirit than he could have expected under the circumstances, and made a few flattering comparisons between this mild-mannered young man and the tong-wielding Dunstan of Mayfield. Tipping his hat to Cuthman, he went back to his digging with a fresh will. As soon as the devil's back was turned, Cuthman started running across the fields to the east, in the direction the morning sun would rise. Soon enough, he came to a cottage, all shut up for the night, and knocked loudly on the door, pounding on it fit to break it down until a window opened and a young woman put her head out. "'What's the meaning of all this noise?' said she. "'Let me in,' said Cuthman. "'The devil's digging a trench to drown us all, and we've got to stop him!' Now the young woman, whose name was Ursula, had not got to where she had in the world by blindly trusting in the words of strangers. She had the freehold of her own home and twenty chickens besides, and she thought to herself that this was the oldest trick of all, a young man trying to gain entrance to her home in the most shameless way. But even as she thought this, it seemed to her that the cross hanging on her wall began to glow with a golden light, and out of the light came a voice. It was huge, like the sigh of the distant sea, and tiny, like the cry of a newborn chick, and it told her to trust the man at the door and let him in. So Ursula unfastened the door and let Cuthman in, and Cuthman explained his plan to her. On his signal, she was to light a candle and set it on her windowsill, then to hold a sieve up in front of it to make a dimly glowing globe of light. Ursula took up a sieve and lighted her candle from the low burning fire and carried it over to the sill. While she held the sieve there, Cuthman went out into her yard to where the sleeping cockerel sat. He struck a cockerel a blow on his feathered neck, enough to knock him from his perch and startle him awake. As the cockerel fell, he crowed, loud and harsh. Well, Cuthman said another prayer, and it was as though he'd set a cheese in motion rolling down a hill, for all the cockerels across the length and breadth of the weald set up a riotous crowing, even though it was still the middle of the night. The noise was loud enough to startle the devil into dropping his pronged shovel, when he looked around, he saw the pale glowing light of Ursula's candle behind the sieve, and he mistook it for the rising morning sun. That and the sound of the cockerels crowing all around him, echoing off the downs, was enough to convince him that morning had come, and he was nowhere near finishing the trench down to the sea which would drown all the God-fearing folk of Sussex. 
but a bargain is a bargain, and once struck it cannot be wriggled out of, not even by the devil himself. The devil cursed and flailed, but he was bound by the wager and had to fly back to his own land, leaving his work half done. As he flew off to the north, he met his wife coming in the opposite direction to see how he'd been getting along with turning the tide against Sussex. When she saw that the work was unfinished and that her husband was spitting and cursing and foaming at the mouth, she began at once to bawl at him and berate him using all the worst words she'd picked up on her travels throughout the world. The devil swore and spat at her, but she took her great cudgel and beat him about the ears with it until he was quite giddy. The pair of them carried on for so long that way that neither noticed the sky wasn't light and day had not yet broken, and so Cuthman's trick passed without them noticing at all. Eventually, they hounded each other so bitterly that both dived down into the crust of the earth to escape each other, flinging up huge clods of turf behind them. And those mounds are known as the Devil's Grave and the Devil's Wife's Grave to this very day. As for Cuthman, he said goodbye to Ursula and went back to his home, and when he returned he found that an invisible hand had kept his sheep within the circle he'd drawn upon the ground, and none had been lost to wandering or to wolves. And that's how the people of the Weald escaped being washed away into the waves, and how Devil's Dyke was dug in a single night. And so my tale is told, and now it belongs to you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You would think people would care for saints. But they don't, not really. Some people wear icons about their necks and call on them in times of strife, rubbing them optimistically between their fingers and their thumbs, but in idler moments saints are forgotten. Dead things waiting for things to do. Take Oswald, murdered by the brute King Panda. Oswald's arms and legs were cut away, and later he became a saint. What people forget is the why of it. For a raven flew down, collected one of Oswald's severed arms, and brought it to a sacred tree. 
There Oswald's blood fell from the tree, and a spring bloomed forth, a miraculous healing well, later called Oswestry. At this holy place a castle was built by the Fitzwarrens. Some remember the first folk Fitzwarren, the bandit king, but none remember me. This is perhaps by my own design, and I am, no doubt, like a saint in that regard. And though my bones ache and my fur is thinner in places than perhaps it ought to be, the magic waters of Oswestry have helped me live a thousand years, and through dozens of adventures. Battling alongside Folk Fitzwarren, was a fine thing, hiding in the woods and drawing battle plans, raiding the rich and giving to the poor in a dozen dashes of daring do. But if you're anything like me, you'll know that a price in blood buys half the pleasure of a price in gold. Which is where that idiot boy came in useful. He came at first from Ellesmere, the boy, Richard, and I liked him straight away, as in addition to being incredibly stupid, a product of the fine tradition of inbreeding within Gloucestershire families, he was also exceedingly greedy. So it was that he came to the Fitzwarrens seeking work. Sir Ivo Fitzwarren took him on as apprentice. It was then, while in Ivo's service, that young Richard, still a scrawny boy, came to the wellspring to draw water. I, of course, was slinking through the shadows, minding my own business, terrorizing a community of mice who'd taken up residence in a nearby castle wall, and as Richard dropped his bucket into the well, I couldn't help overhearing him prattling on to himself about a girl. "'Oh, Alice,' he said, "'I do so wish you would notice me. "'Your beauty shines as bright as the light of the moon. "'Your hair is gold like a sheaf of wheat, "'your voice as joyful as a songbird's music.' "'Oh, give it a rest, I purred, "'and the boy near soiled his breeches.' "'Who goes there?' he said, drawing a dagger and swishing it about cack-handedly. "'Come off it,' I replied, padding forward and swishing my tail in what I considered a most elegant manner. "'You evidently don't have a clue how to fight. "'And that's not a problem, dear boy, as if it's love you want, then steel is a worthless commodity.' I could see he was terrified, which was most pleasing, and as he stuttered and mumbled and staggered slowly backwards, I saw he was a ready fruit, ripe for the plucking. You, you, you're a talking cat, he said. Bravo, I replied. Now put your little bodkin away and let's... Talk business. 
I explained to the boy that base metals are no way to seduce a maiden. I'd learned long ago from a very wise alchemist that while pearls and rubies, silk and silver all have their place in this world, truly the safest and quickest route to beauty is through gold. And certainly poets are alchemists in their way, spinning air into gold with nothing but their tongues. This foolish lad, well, he was no poet. My fine fellow, I said, there's no particular reason for you to trust me, but here you are, talking to an enchanted feline beneath a magic tree. Give me the benefit of the doubt and perhaps try taking some advice. For example, why not suggest to dear old Lord Ivo that you would like to join the Mercer's Guild? If you do, he'll say yes, because Ivo likes money as much as the next fellow. And most importantly, your beloved Alice will see you are a man of substance. No mere water-fetching squire. You will become, in her eyes, a golden proposition. One to match her golden hair. Well, thankfully, young Richard accepted my guidance, and before long he was back at the well, a feather in his cap and a ghastly moustache sprouting all along his top lip. "'Cat?' he said, creeping through the shadows in search of me. "'I've done as you told me, and Alice's father has granted me the honour of accepting my plea. "'I'm to marry Alice, and all my dreams are set to come true.' "'Well, I didn't think much of that, and I jumped down from the branches of the oswestry "'in a sequence of graceful, dramatic bounds, landing at the young boy's feet.' Oh, Richard, I said, your dreams are so small. You're still but a lad. I looked him up and down, very much in favour of the brass buckles on his boots, less so the gormless expression on his face, and I licked a paw absent-mindedly. Dick, I said to him, you don't mind if I call you Dick, do you? Only, Dick, I think we could achieve great things together, you and I. And you trusted me once, so trust me again. How would you like the idea of becoming the richest man in England? Well, the boy paused for a moment, and I could see the cogs turning, and eventually an answer rattled forth, falling from his lips like ingots of lead. I think, he replied, that I would like that very much. Of course you would, I said, scampering up his skinny left leg, round his belly and into his doublet. In which case, why don't you and I go on a little adventure? And that was the beginning of a very exciting time. Our first port of call was the Stipperstones, which we clambered on Midsummer's Eve. I say 
We clambered, but Dick did the climbing while I stayed safely stowed in his jacket. We popped by the election, and naturally all were familiar with me. I'd been part of the community for generations, and when I explained that Dick and I were throwing our hats into the ring of local politics once more, well, there was a resounding upswell of support. Our only real competition was a witch called Bianca, who I had Dick poison and a half-giant named William Ball, and all William, who people called Billy, was interested in, was Iron, and I made the case that Iron was hardly the thing for witches. All it does is get in the way. So it was that the votes were counted, and from his great stone chair the devil declared Dick his king for the year, after which we had everything we needed to really get to work. Dick married Alice and inherited the title Richard Whittington, Dick to his friends. Alas, back in Gloucestershire, Dick was the youngest son, so stood to inherit nothing, no title and so on, and so... Though we gradually worked away at diminishing the number of heirs, we also started a rather profitable imports business. We started in velvet, which is a splendid material, I think we can all agree. And from 1388, we were the go-to people for monarchs and nobles alike. On our first trip to London, Dick was terrified, quaking in his boots, so I more or less had to wear them for him. He turned back, fearing the place, but after the sage administration of a simple tonic, the poor fellow fell under the illusion that the bells of the city were calling to him. "'Turn again, Whittington,' he heard them say. "'Once, Lord Mayor of London. "'Turn again, Whittington. "'Twice, Lord Mayor of London. "'Turn again, Whittington. "'Thrice, Lord Mayor of London.' "'I didn't want to push it much more than thrice, "'as the boy was never much for counting, "'but suffice to say, turn again he did.' To start with, I had to get my paws a little dirty. I caught rats, hundreds of the things, and through this Dick made a great many friends, friends who were very much in need of hosiery, and our successes in velvet opened up new markets in silk and broadcloth. The king, also named Richard, spent over £3,500 with us. In today's money, that's almost £4 million. And from there, we started lending money, which was always the real aim of the game. Good old Richard II. Poor fellow had a terrible head for figures, and before the year 1399 he was in debt up to his eyeballs. We also started a very jolly sideline, selling cats. You see, mogs were everywhere in those days, much the same as they are now, in all honesty, most of them dumb as a box of old hammers. But with a judicious enchantment, we could pass them off as magic. And so it was that Dick sold his magic cat a dozen times over. Oh, of course, the enchantments wore off, but 
a deal's a deal. In the meanwhile, we had further election successes. In 1384, Dick was elected councilman to the City of London. Then in 1394, the Sheriff of London. Before, after poor old Adam Bam, the then mayor, had a terrible accident involving a brick, timely dropped from the top of an alleyway. Well done to Dick on that one. He timed it perfectly. The king very wisely appointed us mayor. Well, poor old King Richard II, Bolingbroke led a coup against him, the same Bolingbroke who was incredibly fond of our merchandise. I claim no particular credit in the plot, only suffice to say that both sides were admirably clad. Still, Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV in short order, also couldn't count for figs. So it was that we rode a wave of success, re-elected Mayor of London in 1406, becoming a Member of Parliament in 1416, and all the while we became best of chums with Henry's son, also called Henry, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Henry the Younger, who would become Henry V, also borrowed huge sums, all the while thinking we were best of friends. When they extended Westminster Abbey, who better to oversee the finances than us? And after we were re-elected mayor for the third time in 1419, and people started piping up about usury, a dirty word, no mistake, who better to sit as judge over the whole sordid affair than trusty old Dick Whittington? People overlooked his habit of referring to his doublet for advice, not least because we engaged in a great many charitable works, and who wants to criticise a rich man who does so much good with his money? We rebuilt the Guildhall, in part because the previous iteration was an absolute abomination, and a jolly good chunk of Greyfriars Library, which was very useful to me, as some of the books I needed were tricky to find elsewhere. We opened a ward for unmarried mothers at St. Thomas's Hospital, one of my favourite places to visit for guaranteed stroking and cosseting in warm bosoms. We dug drainage systems all through Billingsgate and Cripplegate as well, because I have a sensitive nose and the smell beforehand was positively dizzying. Indeed, we opened Whittington's Longhouse, a veritable palace of lavatories, 128 seats, if you can imagine, all positioned so that at high tide every last turd was washed out to sea by old Father Thames himself. I felt a little sorry for Alice who always wanted a baby, but through careful management of her meals with little additions of fennel, parsley, pennyroyal and a pinch of arsenic, I managed to keep her womb reliably empty. Nothing would have been worse than the pitter-patter of tiny feet. People barely think of the cat when there's a baby around, and even I draw the line at infanticide. 
When it came time and Richard had outserved his usefulness, I did a few very clever things about which I remain incredibly proud. I had his will drafted, leaving millions to good works. His bequests rebuilt Newgate Prison. After all, one never knows if they might end up in hokey, so it's best to ensure the brig is in tip-top condition. Likewise, we built the brand new sheriffs and recorder, which later became the Old Bailey. For it's always good to keep judges happy. You can have that advice for free. We also created some super arms houses, including St. Michael's and a number of very useful drinking fountains through which, should Swan ever have the need, all sorts of Tonics might be administered to the local populace en masse, whether that be for their betterment or their ill. I also, rather nattily, had one of those enchanted cats done in, mummified and entombed with Dick's corpse at St. Michael Paternoster Royal. They found it in 1949, which people found very exciting. Knowing what's good for me, of course, I never took up a permanent residence in the capital. The well at Oswestry is my true home, and there is nowhere in the world quite like Shropshire. I'm sure you'll agree. Speaking of which, there are fresh elections coming up on the Stippistons. I still have a rich vein of savings. It's prudent to ensure one squirrels at least part of their fortune away for rainy days. But it's been quite a while since I had an adventure. The term only lasts a year, and with the judicious application of bribes and a little underhand dealing, a face like yours would make an outstanding candidate for kingship. So, how about it? I think that you and I could achieve great things together. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.